right, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to teach this Bible class quick this morning. Um, I missed last Sunday, so I got to miss, I didn't get to hear Josh's uh, intro to this discussion on work, but I cheated and grabbed his transcript and read through it, so <laughs> I have a little bit of an idea where, of where we're going and what you guys learned last week. So what I want to do this morning as, as a second class on work, I want to do a quick review over what we did last week over what we learned last week, and also um, dive a little bit deeper into the fall redemption and restoration and how that applies more personally to us, and also how we can apply this and walk it out in our everyday life. So uh, I want to start by telling you about something that's happened very recently. In Europe, they held what was called an ARC conference. It was set up by uh, a world-famous psychologist called Dr. Jordan Peterson. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, he's uh, fairly well-known in the political and uh, popular sphere. But he set up this conference in order to try and uh, discuss uh, the, this, the topic of citizenship. So ARC stands for Ali Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. And they had several different types of people on. They had a lot of different people from religious backgrounds, including Jews, Christians, Muslims, um, trying to figure out the foundations of our country and of the West and what kind of brings us together and how we can be better citizens in the future. And one thing he discussed here, here's a quote from Jordan Peterson at the end. And he was, he was very passionate in his response. He was, you could hear him fighting back tears as he said this. He's like, we have forgotten the responsibility that we need to bear in our life to make our lives bearable. And we have forgotten the meaning and the adventure and the purpose and the significance and the earned self-regard that, that goes along with the sacrificial attitude. And we have forgotten to tell our children the same thing. We can remember who we are. We can remember who we are. That's what this conference is, is for, is to remind people everyone who attends, who you are. You are men and women, individuals made in the image of God who stumble eternally uphill towards the Jerusalem on the hill, the shining city on the hill. We are so foolish. We regard those propositions, those religious propositions, as something approximating primitive superstition, when in fact they are the most brilliant intuitions into the fundamental structure of reality that have ever been offered, and we predicated our entire civilization on those presuppositions. And later he said, like, it is our responsibility to tilt the world toward heaven and away from hell. And we put this conference together to encourage people to do exactly that, in the belief that it is the people that can do exactly that, not only can, but must. Now, this is a call to responsibility from Jordan Peterson, and it's admirable. It's very inspiring, especially in a world where a lot of young people are growing or like folding into themselves, and we see an increase in mental health issues and a spike in different mental health medications. So it offers a vision of the future for this next generation to come together underneath a collective set of values and principles. However, there is a problem with this. If we listen carefully, we know that for many who attend the conference, who attended this conference, both religious or secular, 
Heaven is not a real place. It is this imaginary representation of a perfect world that all humans strive for. To get away from suffering, that the hell of suffering, like the Holocaust, and to strive for a utopia, so to speak. All humans long for this utopia and this nirvana. We see it in every different worldview and religion. So we as Christians, we claim to hold the truth. We claim to have the truth of God and his word. And that heaven is real. Hell is real. And we can offer, I think, a superior worldview to not only our next generation, but we can live it out ourselves and show the world that heaven is real. And that hell is real. And there's a way for us to reach heaven. Now, the other problem with this view is that, if you, if you noticed, he, think, he thinks that if we just work really hard together, we can strive to heaven together. And stumbling and bumbling, but we can strive to heaven together. Now, for believers, we know that that's impossible. We know that we are fallen creatures, and we cannot reach heaven on our own. So I kind of want to tie that incorrect worldview on how we see the fall and how we see ourselves with how we are supposed should see ourselves through how we see our God and what he has done for us. So just to start our minds on that path, let's review a little bit what we learned last week. So if you remember, Josh divided it up into four acts. You guys remember what those four acts were? Creation was first. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> She's been helping me all week. All right. Creation. What's the second one? The fall. And the third one? Redemption. And the fifth, the fourth, sorry. The restoration. Very good. Okay, so in creation, uh, what did God say about his creation? It was very good. Not just good, but very good, right? Very good. good. And so if you remember the story, so what blessing did he give Adam and Eve? Take dominion, okay? And there is, so he was, he blessed them to mate and he was made in God's image, right? Let's go ahead and make, he made man and woman in the image of God. And he also, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature upon the earth. And he also gave them food for seeds and fruit to eat. And the fall. Uh, if you recall the fall, what happened there? How did, how did the fall take place? Yes, Andrew. They sinned. How did they sin? Good, good. They they. they yeah, they rebel against God. How do they rebel against God specifically? They, they were approached by someone, right? Okay, and what did, what did he tell them? Or Eve specifically? Excellent, excellent. So we have Satan coming up to Eve and saying, God is actually lying to you. He's not trustworthy and he's actually trying to keep something good from you. And 
Um, work is merely a means to an end. We just go to work for money, and we go to work to, so that we can spend that money on our personal time later, go on nice vacations, uh, and just to pursue our own hobbies and, pers and pursuits. Um, and this can be frustrating for us at work. Um, this can be frustrating if that is your view of work. If your, view, if your work is to pursue your own passion, which is your, your idol, so you have an idol set up and you're pursuing that passion, then anything that you're doing other than that is, gets in the way and is merely a means to get to this other higher thing that you want to do. And that doesn't have to be necessarily God. It's what, it could be anything that you place as your God. So um, you say you place such a high value on, uh, so for me, for example, uh, I've, I'm a medic in the Air Force, and I've also worked on the ambulance for a time. There was a point in time in my life when I wanted to like, become a chaplain. And I saw in the medical field, I saw this revolving door of seeing the same people over and over again. I was like, hello, ma'am. Oh, we, wow, we just picked you up last week for an OD, for an overdose. And now we're picking you up again. It's like, I feel like I'm just, all this work is meaningless and pointless. There's no point to it. So I want to direct my work to something that actually means something and pursue the Lord. And so I would become lax in, and wouldn't pursue excellence in my own work as a medic, which is important because I'm trying to save, as my job is, the whole point of my job is to save lives. So that's how, it, how we can ha kind of have the, the Catholic distortion in our life and become idle in our work. Uh, later, however, there's another, there's another form of this though that came up later after the Reformation, if you recall, Martin Luther, uh, and the other reformers kind of stepped away from the Catholic Church and corrected a lot of these ideas. They said, no, family's important. Priests, pastors, yes, should get married, should have family, and work is a good thing. But then it eventually, especially with the uh, evolution of the um, Industrial Revolution, we have what now has become the Protestant distortion, where work has now become our identity. So we can work for... And work becomes, therefore, our idol, I-D-O-L-E. So we're not working to, for a different passion or a different cause. Work now becomes our passion. The, the work itself is our passion. Um, one example of this, I, um, on the medical front, I heard a testimony of a Christian man who used to work, work as a uh, paramedic in uh, New York City. And he would get almost a high from every time he saved a life. The feeling of fulfillment and sustainment that he got from saving lives was his drive, was his purpose and his meeting. And his work was his identity. So there are three things here about that. So work is the source of, in this distortion, work is the source of your satisfaction. You work because you enjoy it. Um, and work, work is a, and work is about making a name for yourself. So you could be about, so because you're saving lives, or because I'm saving lives, I'm, I'm doing it so I can get the praise and the recognition for my excellence in my job. 
and that can also lead to frustration when I walk away from work and I did really well, but no one acknowledges it. Now I'm frustrated because no one acknowledged how great a medic I am. Or the third, uh, a third way this can manifest is that we pursue a, a job or a passion in order to make a difference in the world. Making that difference becomes the idol in our life. And like Steve, Steve Jobs, we try to put a quote, dent in the universe. So all of these are forms of self-glorification. So when we idolatrize, we are trying to glorify ourselves, much like Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar did when he said, look what I have built. Look at this great kingdom I have built. And how did God respond to that? <laughs> he went crazy for seven years and ate grass. Until, until he repented and the Lord restored him to his position. So now, as we try to under, now that we've had these two different categories of idleness in our work and idolatry of our work, I want us to kind of figure out, I want us to think about where we fall in our minds, which we tend to lean towards in our own work. And I mean, we, we don't have a whole lot of time here. It's like, let's take five minutes. We want to split up into some small groups here, three or four small groups, and we can discuss like, how those different distortions kind of take place in our own life, and then we'll come back and we'll continue on from there. All right. We had a short five minutes there. Let's get back in from what I was hearing from discussion. Sounds like uh, you guys are getting ahead of me and already solving the world's problems. <laughs> so, so hopefully we, we helped identify what's some, some, some ways that we struggle with both idleness and idolatry in our own lives and we're sharing that with each other. Uh, I think that's an important part of this. Because when we identify sin in our lives through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, we have a responsibility to respond. Um, Andrew, do you know what we do when we sin? What, what, how, how should we respond when we sin? It's for forgiveness? Okay. It's, yes, so um, that is good. That is correct. Yes, that there's a recognition of sin, right? And we confess repent and believe. Those are the, the three, three stages of it. So when we confess, we're confessing to the Lord and we confess to each other, at least trust, uh, our trusted brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can grow in our faithfulness to God together. And so there's confession and then there's a repentance. Do you know what repentance means? Okay. I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, but it's like you're doing great. That's right. It, it's, a, it's a turning from one thing, so a turning away from one thing and going the other way, right? So it's, it's a turning around, a changing of mind. And we tend to think, oh, it's just change your mind. It's, like, it's a simple thing to do. No, it is not. It is extremely difficult, extremely hard. So 
One example, one way I've thought about this is um, I, I did a kayaking trip on the Mississippi River, and while I was on the river, I had this thought in my hand. It's like, what if this entire river repented? And like, like switched, like it was no longer flowing to the Gulf. It was in switched directions, started flowing uphill. We have the whole Gulf of Mexico in northern Minnesota. <laughs> Think about the change that that brings. It completely changes the landscape. So it, that, that's how drastic it can be. How drastic of a turn we're taking when it comes to repentance. So, and the third, the third thing is belief. So belief, we have to, when we, when we believe, we have to see our God rightly, and we have to see ourselves in the story that he's writing in history. As, as Josh wrote it out last week, it's like we have the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the restoration. We have to see ourselves in that story and how God relates to us in that story. All right. So now I want to transition more into like what it means to follow Christ and how we um, can invest in him and his work. So first, what not to do. Now, Jesus told a parable in, of uh, the par- parable of the, of, the, of the rich man, of a rich man in the seeds. He told them, it's like the, the rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this. I'll just tear down my barns, which I already have, <laughs> and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, ah, you have so many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. End quote there. So, This is a parable from Christ, not to invest in ourselves and to store up our wealth and our desires and our treasures and our passions and our activities, our time, our relationships for ourselves, for our own benefits and our own self-glorification, but for God. And there's another another parable that Jesus gave uh, regarding this. It's like, it is like a man about to go on a long journey. And he called his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each depending on each one's ability. Then he went on the journey, and immediately the man who had received five talents went and put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man who earned two, who, who had two talents, earned two more. But the man who received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master and the little servants came and settled accounts with them. The man had received five talents approached, presented his five talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. And the man with two talents also approached and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I have earned two more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. Then the man who received one talent also approached and said, master, I know you. You are a harsh man. 
reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I, I, was afraid to, I, w- I was afraid to do anything with my talent. I went off and, and hid your talent on the ground. But, but see, I have what is yours. I have it here. His master replied to him, you evil and lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have more than enough. But for the one who does not have, even what has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what was wrong with the, with the first servant? The servant with the one talent. The third talent. He was afraid of and did not trust his master. So his actions all predicated on how he viewed his master. He was afraid of him and did not trust him with the responsibility that he had been given. The other two did trust their master, because recall in in the early part of the parable that the master gave of his resources to the servants, each depending on their ability. So the master took the servants' abilities into account. It's like, this one will be able to handle five well. This one will be able to handle two well. This one will be able to handle one well. So we're all given a certain level of gifts and talents and resources. And it's not just money. It's not just um, talents and spiritual gifts. It's also time, resources, relationships. All of these, all of life, every breath is from the Lord. And how we manage and use those resources for the Lord um, will show how we view him. Or don't view him as we're using those good gifts for ourselves and our own passions, then we have a view of him that is kind of dismissive. What do you think? It's like, I can just do what I want with this resources. With this breath, I can just do what I want. These words I'm given, I can just say what I want. With this work and this job that I'm given, it's so I can pursue these other gifts that God's given, food, hobbies, um, excellence and praise and fame and glory and my own self-glorification and my own comfort. So we can escape these tempting traps of idolatry by seeing our God rightly for who he is and trusting him. That ought to motivate us to work for him and to know him more and to bring him glory. So one example of this is I, I once saw this short show of a warlord about a warlord, and this warlord character went to punish a servant that had displeased him in some severe way. So what he made the servant do, he had the ch- servant get down on all fours and the resting upright positions, hand, hands and feet, so to speak, knee, knees, hands and knees, and that servant became the warlord's chair for the day. But to the warlord's surprise, the servant was excited in his zeal to serve his master in any way that he could, even if it meant serving as a piece of furniture. So this is a foolish passion, of course, because we don't want to direct our, that type of zeal and passion towards someone who does not deserve it. But our God, our master, is good, and he is generous. And it's like, though we sinned against him, 
He doesn't call us to be a mere chair or to be a mere piece of furniture or a brick. He calls us to sit with him and his son on his throne. That's, that's the level of passion and love our Lord has for us. So if we see ourselves in relation to him in that way, that should bring out of us a greater love and passion for him and a trust to serve and honor him more. So, and that should spill over into every area of our life. So when we, when we see him in our work in this way, uh, there are a few things that happen. We have a freedom from worry. Things that we're worried about on this earth, uh, we, we can now trust God and his sovereignty that he is good. And we often worry because we don't, don't trust him and his sovereignty and his perfect plan. And we are tempted to guard and protect what he has given us for ourselves. But when we trust him and see him for who he is, uh, we can give him the glory. For the workaholic, it's like rest is a gift from the Lord. He gave us night and he gave us sleep. We can work during the day and sleep during the night and he gave us the Sabbath of rest. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a process and each one of you may have a different way of going about doing that, but rest is an important part of work. And even the secular side, overwork is more detrimental than taking strategic breaks. Work is important, but we work better and more effectively if we take strategic breaks and rest strategically. We're also free to work and create in order to bring dominion over the work and, and display God's glory. And we are free to excel. And there are several examples of Christians in history who did not work in the clergy, who weren't pastors, who weren't missionaries, who displayed this excellence. One story I heard was of a Catholic stonemason who was working on part of this, this, this random little part of this roof, and he was working on very carefully on this statuette, this beautiful statuette. And one of the other workers looked and says, why are you working so hard on that? Judging by where that will be, that'll be completely covered by another part of the roof, and no one will see it. He's like, oh yes, he'll see it. He knows, he sees. He's like, oh yes. So, and also Eric Little, who ran um, if you know, you know his story, he ran um, the 200-meter race in the Olympics in the, I it was the ninth, early 19, before the, it was before World War I. It was, ah, boy. And one of the Olympics, that won that, um, and he won the race. And, some, and eventually he went on to become a missionary in China, and there, where he died, eventually died in a prison. But he said, he's like, I want to serve my Lord but the Lord has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. William Wilberforce also, in England, worked for a majority of his career uh, in England, even though, uh, as a politician, even though he wanted to pursue ministry, he was encouraged to stay in ministry and work to eventually pass legislation to free the slaves. You guys know it's an incredible story. I think he worked for... 35 to 40 years to get that legislation passed. So we, can, we are free to pursue that excellence in pursuit of the kingdom of God and for his glory. So how do we start developing this um, attitude in, in ourselves as we try to work for Christ? Because this attitude is key. First, we, let's practice gratitude, especially when it's hard. 
There's one missionary that I heard one time. He's like, when, when it is most difficult to trust the Lord, is not our faith more valuable? Um, is not, don't we bring more glory to the Lord when everything is crumbling around us and we still trust him? An example of that would be Paul and Silas in the prison. Even though they were in prison, they were still singing praises to the Lord. And we can practice this ourselves when we uh, remember and memorize psalms that shout and sing praises to the Lord, even though it might not feel like we're very grat- uh, very grateful for what God is doing in our lives. That decision to still trust in the Lord and for what he is doing and his control over our lives is, is, is still a decision that we can make and we can cultivate and practice that in our everyday life. It's also important that we start by prioritizing our faithfulness to God. We order our lives in a way that puts the things that God wants first, first. And that and that lands in every sphere, in our finances, in our relationships, in our time, even in our affections. Our, affection, our, our feelings balanced in a way that, that reflects the Lord. Do we feel the way that God feels? And, that, and by knowing and loving God, we can shape our affections to, eventually be, to become more and more like Him. So, and even balancing relationships is like, for example, your, your dog is not more important than your child. But in today's world, a lot of young people, even medics and medical professionals that I talked to, would sooner save their pet than they would save a human being. And I deal with this as an EMT instructor at times. And I ask him that question, who would you rather save? A complete stranger, a human being, or your pet? And half the room says their pet. So, so we have to get all of our relationships and priorities in line with God in order to see everything rightly. And we also go by demonstrating God's character, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we get to demonstrate the gospel and walking the gospel, demonstrating the gospel in our walk, because when we, don't, when we don't walk our talk, we destroy the message of the gospel. No one will want to listen to us when we're hypocrites. So we walk in love, walk in the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that our Lord calls us to. And then we get to display the goodness of the gospel in our workplaces, in our time, in our relationships, and even displaying it in our hard work, the excellence of our hard work. We also work for a reward. Even earthly money is a good reason to work because we need money to live. There's still that practical aspect. We have to provide for our families, and there's, there's an, a hierarchy of, of importance there to where we're pursuing the benefit and the prosperity of our families so that we can pursue God together, and we're pursuing the prosperity and goodness of our fellow congregants and our, our church members and the message of Christ, as well as for the wider world around us. Um, we're also given and promised other rewards. Um, because with that money, we, can, uh, we have provision and we can also uh, give generously. John Piper says this about money. God gives us money. We'll wrap up here shortly. John Piper says, God gives us money on earth in order that we may invest it for dividends in heaven. 
The person who thinks the money he makes is meant mainly to increase his comforts on earth is a fool. Jesus says, wise people know that all their money belongs to God and should be used to show that God and not money is their treasure, their comfort, their joy, and their security, unquote. So what what are we to do? Whatever we do, we do it, as, as Paul says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. And that inheritance includes a seat on his throne. It includes a resurrection from the dead. So that includes a new body and a sinless heart. So freedom from death and freedom from sin. An inheritance as a child of God and therefore familiar relationship with God. We receive crowns. We receive a new name by those to the, for those who overcome. And we're given responsibilities. And because we're not going to not work in heaven. We will continue to work in heaven and ruling and our reigning with him and as judges over what he has given us responsibility over. And we will live and work with him for an eternity. So we have this story to offer the world. As everyone wants to try and strive toward heaven by the, under their own power, we recognize that we are fallen and we cannot reach heaven under our own power. But instead of us trying to strive for heaven, we want to run from heaven, but God comes down and brings us into his heaven by his glory. He takes us from fallen to redeemed and to restore our work. And by following him, we have the promise that one day he will bring heaven to earth and set up his kingdom forever. And he'll correct and restore everything that was lost due to our sin. So let us continue to repent of our idolatry of work and our idleness in it as the word of God and the spirit prompts us. And let us step into our original calling of worshiping God through our work on this cursed world, just as he still works in our cursed world, building his kingdom. So we work for him and we work for our neighbor. So let's keep having conversations with another about how we as each as individuals and how we as a church and as a community can come together and encourage one another to order our lives in a way that shows God's glory and his gospel. For all the hope of all, all for the hope to receive our promised reward in relationship with him forever. Okay. Any questions? Okay. Sorry, I went a little long. I'm going to close with a word of prayer and let us continue to encourage one another today and in the future as we work for the Lord's kingdom and not for ourselves. Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for your goodness and your grace that you have lifted us from rebels deserving of death to a place higher than the angels to sit on your throne with Christ and to rule and to reign with him, and to receive a reward that will not rot, that will not be destroyed, that will not, that is not meaningless, and is not compulsory, and is not toilsome. That we can honor and serve you and glorify you in fullness, the fullness of joy forever and ever. 
Father, grant us a greater understanding of who you are and how we see ourselves as a church and as individuals in your grand story that you are writing. Help us to know you and love you and spread your light and your glory and display your glory for the rest of creation to see as you originally made us. We praise you for the sake of your Son and his gospel. In the name of Jesus, amen.